0: I think going back i think it was probably five years ago or or maybe a bit longer when i did my first one it it was quite raw and there wasn't an entirely clear set of rules and so on and and that kind of appealed because it was kind of random (laughs) it was like Mm. being a kid again and just playing you know going out and having fun Uh, yeah yeah so yeah so i I guess that's where the interest was sparked and you get a little more integrated into it and, and start understanding it and as a scientist, you're analytical, so you look at these things and you break it down and you try and work out how you how you can become better at it and and so on. So, yeah, it's a kind of fun fun sport to analyze and certainly a fun sport to coach people in because there's so many elements of it.
1: This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skin Skincare for Athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool. We protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpre.com. Today, my guest on the Smart Athlete Podcast has his PhD in exercise science. He's also a certified personal trainer and has a slew of other certifications, which I won't rattle quite all of them off. Um, he spent three years at a postdoctoral fellowship in metabolism and endocrinology. Um, at this point. I'm sure it's uh, probably still counting at least in his head, but he's an author or co-author on at least 70 different research studies. Uh, He's a registered nutritionist and former professor, now full-time coach. Welcome to the show, Dr. Thomas Solomon.
0: Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.
1: Thanks for uh, getting back on me, Thomas. um, For those just joining us, uh, Thomas was kind enough to reschedule with me because I screwed up our schedule the other day. Uh, When I was going to be in a completely different time, I was going to be on vacation. I was in Hawaii, and I think our time zone right now, we've got seven hours difference. And if we had tried to do it, then we would have had, let's see, 12 hours difference. So I would have been up, I think, in the middle of the night to try to record with you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Here we are at a sensible time frame. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Everybody's got the sun up. Everything's going okay. Yeah. So, it's, it's afternoon for you. Have you already got your training in for the day? I have not. No, I will be
0: doing that this evening. Yeah, it's pretty warm during the day here. So, it's about uh, in Fahrenheit, it's about 90 at the moment. So, okay, it'll, it'll cool down a bit this evening. And,
1: yeah. I always find like, I like to get it done in the morning just because I have the most energy and the most motivation. Do you like, are you still ready to go in the evening?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I don't mind what time of day I go. If I uh, if I have nothing going on in the morning, I like to get out and get up early because there's no one around. It's quite peaceful. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, but, uh, but I, yeah, I don't mind what time of day. Yeah.
1: So you've got um, you have a background in kind of a lot of different sports. Um, it seemed like you went so like you correct me please, but you went from sure. running to cycling to duathlon, back to running, and then to obstacle course racing are you still yeah. doing OTR now um yes and no so uh, I was competing
0: pretty heavily in it until last year and uh-huh. then I decided to step away from it at that level and uh, I, I still plan to enter the odd event mainly to keep on top of the developments because it's a fairly new sport yeah and I'm coaching a few guys in the sport so I'd like to keep a hold on where it's moving towards and so on but uh but as a competitive athlete I've kind of (laughs) reined that in because I I think I probably started competing when I was 12 years of age and yeah yeah I turned 39 this year so it was well a lot of years of competing I feel done mentally done with that so uh,
1: yeah no it definitely like it definitely catches up with you I'm I'm only 30 and I'm like trying to figure out I think my difficulty and I don't know if this is yours especially switching so many sports but my difficulty is At least for me, I kind of reach almost a plateau in the sport, and then it's like, "What am I chasing now?" Like, you know, you kind of reach the level where you're like, "I can only push myself so far for so many hours, so hard," and then you're like, "There isn't much more to progress." So it's like, "Yes, I enjoy it, but the workload is enormous. So what's the motivation?" Yeah. Yeah. And does
0: it integrate with the other real life things that we have going on? You know. Right wives and husbands and kids and whatever and yeah, careers yeah. mate so it's yeah
1: yeah so so what's the so what's your story in terms of like why did you switch from one to the other like it's this continuous development into different mm-hmm. disciplines how how did that all kind of de- develop you, for you starting with running and then moving on from there
0: yeah i suppose i've always been i've always been curious with activity no matter what it is i, like, I just like being outside and um, the, the running, I suppose, we had a, an interesting school system where running was almost a punishment where you got, you know, you had to run a lap of the field and so yeah. on. And I guess a lot of people relate to that. So I was kind of pushed into running um, and quite enjoyed it. So stuck with that for, for several years through school. But but I've always been interested in trying new things. So, uh, yeah, I moved towards cycling mainly because I met a bunch of people who rode bikes and it looked interesting and fun. and you know we've all watched the tour de france and you mm-hmm. have streams of cycling fast and <laughs> so i moved towards that and then i suppose it was a natural development to combine that with running um, which was where the duathon uh, interest came from mm-hmm. um, but actually i always found that there was something missing because most of those running and cycling is generally a road-based sport and you know that's where the mm-hmm. emphasis is placed and and I never really worked it out until about 10 years ago, but I, I actually love trails and I love mountains. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of where the obstacle racing came from is getting into trail racing. And, and and a lot of the obstacle course races are on trails and mountains and so on. So mm-hmm. yeah, so I guess part of it's a natural development, part of it's who you meet. and. Just yeah, serendipity, I suppose. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, and just that curiosity of trying new things. You know, can you be good at it? Can you enjoy it, and so on. So
1: yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I've kind of been looking at recently. Um, how much time have you spent in the in the states with like OCRs and stuff?
0: In the US, uh, very little. Um, okay. I traveled over to the US last year for, for one obstacle race, actually. So, oh. I've only done one race in the US. Uh, okay. I did live in the US for three years. I did a lot of road running and uh, a few trail races there. But um,
1: yeah. Well, so, one of the things I've, I've been looking at just mm. over vacation, as, as I was talking about trying to find new challenges, um, this is something that kind of struck my interest in college because my college coaches from this area in um, Colorado Springs, which is where uh, the Olympic training center is, or one of them, there is a yeah. hill. It's actually in Manitou Springs, which is a suburb. Anyway, mm. there's a hill known as the Manitou incline. Yes. I've heard. Of yeah. It. I, just, I know you're familiar. So I kind of like started getting in my head. I'm like, I need to go do this and kind of see what, you know, what I can do, how, how I feel about it. So I, because I was wondering if you'd ever done the Manitou Incline, um, depending I have on how much time you spent on spent time here. Yeah, no, I've I've done a
0: lot of mountain running, but I've never done that specific uh, incline. It's kind of stepped, isn't it? It's kind of uh, not paved, yeah. it's Stepped gradient up to the top. Yeah, I yeah.
1: think it has railroad ties as steps. Mm. If they're yeah. not railroad ties, there's something there. And then I yeah. think the the top, the very top one is labeled whatever number. You know, step it is. When you know you know, that you're at the top. But I was, I was just reading about it, and it's. I think I read something along the lines of like the average gradient's like 35 percent or something like that. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you guys have. It seems like I've spoken to a couple people in Europe, and mm. it seems like you guys have a little bit more access to mountainous terrain. So you probably have something like that around there
0: yeah so that, that's something my wife and i discuss quite a lot she, she's actually american so that's kind of my tie to the us and and we, we always discuss that because when we're looking at where we should live or where we'd like to live the access to mountains and trails usually in the us the towns you usually have to drive to them or make mm-hmm. an effort to get to them. Yeah. Whereas in Europe, a lot of the cities and towns are often embedded in the mountains. And actually that's how we've ended up in Innsbruck living here is the city is in the mountains. And so like from, from our balcony, we can see three mountain ranges and I can mm-hmm. step out the door and run to, you know, five minutes down the road and I'm at the foot of one of the trailheads. So um, so that's quite nice for access and it takes away that, that time component of having to drive to the trailhead. Mm-hmm. So, and we quite like that um, and we have you know similar to what you've just described we have yeah challenges like that <laughs> of of, uh, of europe and you know there's there's one uh there's what there's a couple in the uk where i'm from but there's there's one that i recently did in norway and it's called the the stolzen steps and it's, it's a lot shorter it doesn't climb so high mm. and it's certainly not at altitude because nowhere in norway really is it's Mm. but it's kind of a fun fun thing to do and you see lots of you know all walks of life people are you know young kids old people disabled people whatever you know everyone's trying it and so it's kind of fun I, i like that impetus for for getting people active and you know whatever the goal is it's nice to see people out there achieving it so
1: yeah it's just it's nice to see like I, I've, like I said, I've talked to several people in, in Europe in various places, both Americans abroad and people mm. from various countries. And um, it, it's nice to kind of see like the reality of what kind of European cities have. I think at least in my own head, there's this like um, idealized vision about, like you said, it's like a town basically nestled in the mountains, Mm. kind of integrated are you more walkable there because that's something i feel like we're lacking a lot of
0: yeah yeah that's i mean the other thing i suppose is the yeah it's safe to walk there there are sidewalks which is nice and you don't always find that in the u.s i certainly found that i lived in cleveland ohio for for a few years and there were quite large areas around where i worked where there really wasn't a sidewalk so you could were you in cleveland clinic (laughs) i was yeah that's right yeah yeah um so, you know so that not having the pedestrian access makes it difficult or or having bike lanes that are separated from the road um, mm-hmm. that's something we experienced in, in Denmark that there's a big extensive bike lane network and it, it just makes it safer and then of course if it's safer there's one less barrier to to go and do do the activity so
1: yeah I, I know so here in Kansas City it's much like many other American mm-hmm. cities it's very car centric and now we're like in the process of almost trying to retrofit the city to be more bike compliant. Oh yeah, yeah. and 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 pedestrian friendly. And the, the neighborhood I live in is more pedestrian friendly. But even here, where lots and lots of people walk, I went to like a, I'll say like a city planning meeting where they're talking about changing the road and that kind of stuff. And there yeah. were still people like grumpy, like grumpy. Like, not all of them are men, but like grumpy old men, like. Who rides their bike? Why do we need bike lanes? And like, it's yeah. just like attitude about yeah. bikes. It's like not everybody wants to get in the car. So mm. I think there's a cultural thing too that we yeah. have to fight in terms of like retrofitting our cities to be more pedestrian friendly. Yeah, yeah,
0: and it's difficult because you know these the cities, as we know them, have existed for, for you know fifty to a hundred years, and then we're yeah. trying to add on a bike lane system and places yeah. like. Um, Copenhagen, for example, they, they kind of had the foresight back in the 60s and 70s to start building it then <laughs> before yeah. it was too populated, and so it is difficult to to retrofit, and that's something we've seen in the UK where they're trying to add bike lanes in, and it, it's a noble effort, but it doesn't really work so well. It's still very busy, and
1: mm-hmm. the,
0: the bike lanes often aren't separated from the road and, and so on, so it's a, a big challenge. Yeah.
1: Um... I'm going to switch switch lanes on you. I don't mean to make a terrible pun there. Um so yeah. I, I I saw you had you came back to running. I think it was post-doctoral at this point in your life um mm-hmm. to work on like your 5k speed. And I think that's when you set your 5k PR.
0: Yeah, um, that's
1: correct. Um which I thought was time is impressive, but not just that. I think a lot of people will argue for like your fastest 5k times being more collegiate age. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just a matter of cohort in terms of people have time to devote to that or whether it really is the age that you're the fastest. So yeah. I'm kind of curious, you know, what were you doing to kind of set that set that PR at this point in your life? And like yeah. I'm 30 now, so if I wanted to go run my mm-hmm. fastest 5k, you know, what what would you suggest I do, I guess? Yeah. <laughs>
0: It, there's a little bit of luck involved for me in that in that okay. time of life as I, as I suppose I, I was working um I was working in a job that was pretty high pressure, i suppose, long hours and and there was a lot of demand to produce and I needed an outlet and there was a local track group and one of the things I miss and admire about the u s are the little kind of track clubs that exist mm-hmm. and we have a different system in the u k where I grew up where it's more. Sort of mass participation clubs and you pay a fee and so on but what i liked about the us were these little kind of you know niche track groups that had formed from you know maybe spin out of colleges and things and they're these die-hard runners that just want to keep training so, yep. so i fortunately met one of these groups and and they were a group of really good runners and, and you know kind of spurred my interest to get back into it so i suppose for, if I look at it from the consistency of good training, that period of my life at that time was just a brilliant period of like going to the track after a hard day at work, laying down a good effort every other day, meeting up some guys and putting in good miles. And um, Um, so, yeah, a little bit of luck, I suppose, you know, (laughs) never met that track group. I probably wouldn't have been interested in aiming for a 5k PR. Yeah. and then like coming back to what you said is that people normally peak in their college years. I never really focused on 5k running back in those days. And so okay. it was something not entirely new, but something fresh to, to focus on. So that's mm-hmm. probably why I ended up focusing on that there. So yeah.
1: A little yeah, I mean a little bit of luck will go a long way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> everything kind of coming together at the right a right point in time. Yeah. Did you did you enjoy it? Was a, it was a five k on the track or was it a road race? No, it was a road race. Yeah. Okay. The, the PR was set on a road race. Yeah. Okay, I. Um, that's one thing I find kind of splits people is I learned to love track in college, yeah. but it can be tough for a lot of people, especially running five k or ten k on the track. Especially the ten k, mm. you got twenty five laps on the track.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: and uh, it can be a little mind numbing if you're not really. If you have to find this headspace where you're just focused on like your body's motion and mm-hmm. you completely ignore that you're on a track going in a circle yeah <laughs> over yeah. and over again so
0: yeah you have to become like metronomic and yeah
1: yeah it's it's right it's more about feeling everything than, you know you do a road race or especially a trail race and like you get it, it's not at least for me it's not active in my mind like oh there's a pretty tree but it's like you have a lot of you know, sensory input as you're going along yeah. that yeah. adds variety to the race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, so,
0: yeah, something else to focus on. You need to concentrate heavily on the terrain when you're trail running. And right. On a track, it's you can fall over. People do, but it's you know, it's it's a lot harder to trip over a, a lump of wood or a tree on a track. <laughs> so,
1: right. Yeah. Right. It's it's more it's more likely you're going to run into somebody else than it is you're going to mm-hmm. run into anything on the track.
0: um,
1: Like dogs running across the track aside. I'm sure that's happened somewhere. Um, So, I'm kind of curious, like, so so you've been focused on OCR, you're not so focused now, but um, did you do any like traditional cross country races before then? Or was it like straight into OCR?
0: Yeah, so I mean, cross country, in uh, as it is in the college and high school system in the U.S., is a massive part of school in 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 British like schooling. Um, so you grow up cross country running, and uh, and it, it's good fun. It's low pressure. You know, there are championships, of course, but there's something about cross country that has a different kind of like nerdy fun element to it that you know, yeah takes the pressure off road running and track running, but. Uh, yeah, so there was years of that at school, but not so much as a as an adult. And um, um, but there's there's independent trail races and, and mountain races, or they're called fell races in, in the UK. But uh yeah, so I got involved with some of those and, and that kind of transition towards the obstacle scene. And, and again, it was a little bit of luck just meeting people that were dabbling in these events and and uh, my brother was a bit of a catalyst. He challenged me to to enter one of these events. And we, mm-hmm. we had quite a lot of fun. And, you know, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. Some of the obstacles, you kind of look
1: at them, you're like, hmm, okay, I so. see.
0: <laughs> <That's laughs> well, like the size
1: people. them up as you go.
0: Yeah, that's right. But uh, but it, what what was quite clear with the, um, and it's still true, but it, it is a runner's sport, even though it's not a running race. Mm-hmm. If you're a good runner, you will do quite well. And, and I think where that sport is heading currently is trying to create its identity as to what it really is. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, there's a, there's a governing body that's just been created, a world governing body. And, and so there's regulations and rules coming about to try and establish, you know, how, how much should, should be running and how much should be lifting and how much should be hanging and so on. So I think going back, I think it was probably five years ago or, or maybe a bit longer when I did my first one, it, it was quite raw and there wasn't an entirely clear set of rules and so on and and that kind of appealed because it was kind of random (laughs) it was like being a kid again and just playing you know going out and having fun Uh, yeah yeah so yeah so I guess that's where the interest was sparked and you you get a little more integrated into it and, and start understanding it and as a scientist, you, you're analytical, so you look at these things and you break it down and you try and work out how you, how you can become better at it and, and so on. So, yeah, it's a uh, kind of fun fun sport to analyze and certainly a fun sport to coach people in because there's so many elements of it. But, um,
1: yeah. yeah. So, like, if we're looking at, say, traditional cross-country versus obstacle course racing, obviously you need more upper body since you're going to use it but I mean, what, so what's what's gonna be the big difference in terms of prepping for obstacle course racing versus you know a cross country race?
0: Yeah, so I was one of these people and, and I've seen a lot of similar people do this, is come into the obstacle scene as a runner from a running background. And mm-hmm. there are some obstacle races that are relatively easy and you can get away with it entirely and just be a good runner and smash it and come very highly um there's also a number of races where the obstacles are very technical the the carries are extremely heavy um and some of the yeah some of the things you have to do are absolutely not something you've ever trained for as a cross-country runner and i think Mm -hmm. probably the one standout component is that runners tend to be quite weak in terms of absolute strength you know their relative strength and power might be pretty good but their absolute strength is usually quite poor um, and I think that was certainly something I learned if I go back to my first ever one um, is, is you need to be a lot stronger <laughs> than you think you are. And then, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of lifting involved and there's a lot of specific um, movements. So it's not just about picking weight off the floor. You've then got to move with the weight and it. it can sometimes be in awkward positions on your shoulder, on your back, in your chest and so on. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that that's one of the key things is just being stronger um, but one of the other components and again as a, as a sole runner coming into it you would never have even considered training for this but it is improving your grip strength because there's a lot of you know rigs that you have to hang from and so on and, and some of them can be quite complex or prolonged and and, and that so mm-hmm. uh, so actually the other group of people that tend to be quite good at this sport are people that come from either a climbing background or a mm-hmm. bouldering background um, which is something my wife and I do anyway. So there, there was a little bit of a, a kind of head start in a way. Um, so we we already had some grip strength and grip endurance that that could help us in those events. So, but for mm-hmm. these
1: things that runners don't ever train because they don't need to. So, right? Yeah, I was just focused on like, like forward motion or maybe sometimes yeah. turning slightly. But yeah, mostly we were just moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So I mean, what are you like? What are you using? Are you doing traditional lifts? Are you doing like Olympic lifts? Are you picking up logs and running with like like? What does training actually look like for you? Yeah, or your it's, athletes, it's, I guess.
0: It's quite varied. And the people I coach, it depends on their background and it depends on their proficiency and experience. But if they've never done any strength training, then it purely starts with body weight exercises. Um, to bring their level of strength up, uh, and, you know, simple things, push-ups, body weight squats, so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, the goal is to move towards lifting weight. Um, and at the sort of elite end or the more advanced end, yeah, we'll, we'll be powerlifting, we'll be Olympic lifting. Um, uh, there'll be some sort of circuit type of activities involved in training. Um, mm-hmm. But then, when you come to specificity, the the, the races themselves have these components embedded in the run. So, there's also training sessions we design where we we have a set of obstacles or a set of exercises that are integrated into an interval session. Um, You know, one good example is, you know, the, the Spartan race series has burpees as a penalty in their races. So, we have training sessions which are pretty emotional <laughs> but um it's where you know a set of burpees will be completed immediately before like an 800 meter rip and then you rest mm-hmm. and you repeat and you know much like a track repeat but uh yeah mm-hmm. so so you're integrating a bit of additional fatigue and some specificity to the race and so
1: mm-hmm. yeah so as i mean as a sports developing you're talking about I assume things are kind of becoming a little more standardized. Like, are you getting to like standard obstacles, or is it still just whatever mm. the race director wants to do?
0: Yeah, it's a brilliant question because um, right at the moment there's a there's a push towards having a little more standardization, and the reason for that is some of the some of the bigger brands in the sport. So, if we move away from like the governing body of the sport, and then we consider the brands, which are things like. Um, Tough Mudder and Spartan Race. And mm-hmm. in the U.S. you have something called Rugged Maniac and, and companies like this. They, they're brands. So they have their own series. Some of them have their own world championship events. Um, some of them have their own professional athletes, sponsored mm-hmm. paid athletes. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And in those brands, they've developed over several years and there is standardization where, you know, there will be a certain number of obstacles, the weight of the carries, you'll know what they are and you know what's coming. And there's a little bit of conflict as to whether people like that or not. You know, is it challenging to know what's coming or is it actually useful to know what's coming so you know how to train? hmm. So, but when we go back to the, the governing body and, and rules and regulations, this is this is really juvenile, I suppose, in its development, um, and this is something that's coming about. Um, and there's been a couple of examples in the last year or so where championship events have had an absurd number of complex obstacles that very few people have been able to complete. Um, mm-hmm. One example I'll give you is last year, the European Obstacle Race Championships. Um, I think in the this is in the elite field. I think there were eight men that finished the race and one woman, and that was it. So that it was a little bit redundant. There was a big start line of good athletes, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the race design was so complex that very few people could even finish the race, and, and so that kind of triggered this need for regulation and it, it you know it'd be a bit like a marathon one day suddenly being 50k you know you're right yeah like um, oh yeah
1: you think you're almost there no you're not no you're not
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah so there, there is a need for some regulation
1: um, and it will
0: come but it, it's it's early days so
1: yeah I kind of wonder if you know you could figure out I guess I'll say like a range of parameters instead of saying, You know, I mean, like 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 an Olympic distance triathlon. It's, you know, one point five kilometer swim, a forty k bike, and then a ten k run. Like, it's a standard distance. There is various courses, so you do get some variety there. But you know that like this is the distance we're going. Yeah. So I kind of wonder if you could even do something wider than that with OCR and say, you know, like I'm not super familiar with the sport, so. I apologize for how ridiculous this will probably sound. So, like, say, okay, you know, you're going to have like a wall climb and it can be between five and 10 meters tall. Yeah. And if, you know, if it's over a certain height, then it has to have a rope or whatever. And then you like give almost a grading score to each obstacle. Yeah. And say, like, the obstacle difficulty is one to 10. There's Mm -hmm. 10 obstacles. You can have a maximum score for your course of 50 or whatever. Yeah. So then you know. Okay, maybe today the walls only five meters, and then like um, monkey bars are twenty feet long or whatever. Versus, mm-hmm. and then that score adds up. You follow? I mean, you, you kind of yeah. Go,
0: no, I think that would be. It's like way you, way can have, you
1: can have you can have parameters for each of them. They can always vary, but then the overall difficulty it's like this is a difficulty of 50 for this course or a difficulty of 70. So, you have some standardization, but also keep like the variety and almost like wildness of the sport alive. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that's the appeal.
0: It it is something that's a little bit random and that that appeals to most people in the sport. And part of me feels that if it becomes too standardized, it then becomes a bit like running a marathon where you know, you know the start and the finish is the same distance apart. <laughs> there will be drink stations and aid stations, and and that doesn't appeal to everybody. And, and so, right. yeah. So, but but I like that grading system approach. That I think that could work. But it, I haven't heard discussions of that. Um, yeah, in, in the movements towards that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, um, it it would but... be it would. I think it would take a lot of. Wo- so if you're trying to implement that kind of system, mm-hmm. I think it would take a lot of work. And a lot of revisions as mm-hmm. people argue the merits of yeah you know i don't think that deserves this kind of scoring and like how do you quantify that and you yeah. may be the you know one of the guys to actually figure out how to quantify that with all of your kind of knowledge in both the sport <laughs> and your fields yeah. to figure out like what actually makes sense but yeah i, I think it would take a, a lot of work but it, yeah i just thought about it in terms of my perception of obstacle course racing is is that the randomness and chaos is almost the the appeal for most people versus yeah, yeah let's run a five k.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. that that certainly from having been in the sport and then quite heavily for a few years, that I think that is the appeal. and one of the one of the upsides to that is it keeps it exciting and and it also attracts more people to come into the sport. Um, one of the downsides to that, I feel, is that the I know the governing body would like to push towards Olympic bid, actually, to try and okay. embed this as an Olympic sport. And my fear is that the sport from the outside looks messy and it, and it looks random and it, no one's really cl- clued up to as to what it actually is. And if yeah. that is the case, then being an Olympic sport is, a, is an impossible task. So you have to bring in some kind of standardization and some uniformity so people understand what it is. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I think, you know, there's some good examples of recent sports and climbing is one of them. That's an Olympic sport next year in Japan. And they've created almost a new sport to cater for like the Olympic ideal. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of confusing from the climbers point of view, but but it's exciting for the viewers point of view. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, so they're. Yeah, other challenges to, to overcome.
1: I think you can make the sport I- entertaining to watch as a viewer. I mean, like, uh, I guess I, I obviously there's a Japanese version, and then there's the American version of American Ninja Warrior, which is not the same thing. But you know, like, people don't necessarily—they're not standardized courses at all. No. But people yeah. love watching them. Yeah. So yeah. I think you could take OCR and make it definitely watchable and also mm-hmm. have some kind of you know system that people may not necessarily understand right away but like mm. if i watch gymnastics or figure skating i don't yeah. understand the scoring for that right away either yeah. but i can still enjoy watching it so yes. i don't know that, i don't know that you necessarily have to make it so like black and white like this is my time around a lap on the track yeah. but i th- i think it could be done and still maintain some yeah. of that, some of that randomness.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and as long as it's watchable, then yeah, yeah. The non enthusiasts will like
1: to watch it at a chance. I'd say, I'd say more people would possibly even tune in for OCR versus like a, the five k. I know people that aren't distance runners often have a hard time watching a distance race because they're like, like, what am I? Wa- they don't understand what they're watching. It's Just like when I watch yeah. baseball. I'm bored out on my mind watching baseball because I don't understand the intricacies of what's happening in the shifting players and all of those things.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can certainly, I can certainly attest to that having been to a baseball game and not knowing the rules.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's really, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's not, well, especially there, there's not a lot of movement. It just mm-hmm. seems like guys are standing around. You're like, well, like, what am I watching? Yeah. I'll just, I'll just sit in my beer and eat my hot dog. And <laughs> you <know>? Right. Right. <laughs> um so one thing I'm kind of curious about um with your like qualifications and stuff is so you're you're uh, a registered nutritionist mm-hmm. and so I I have actually I have a registered dietitian that works with me uh in the company yeah what what's the difference between the two like how does that come into your coaching because I know you say specifically like you don't do dietetics or like medical nutrition yeah. therapy so like what is that for you? what like in in your kind of coaching or line of work?
0: Yeah, so I mean the, I guess any practitioner has to work within their remit and, and as soon as you step outside of that you're you're breaching what you're qualified to do and, and so yeah in the in the u s you have dietetics and nutrition, uh, and there are registered dietitians that can work as say Um, medically qualified dieticians perhaps working in hospitals and actually prescribing diets to patients and and we we work closely with some of these actually in Cleveland where they would help us design our our, uh, inpatient diets for patients that we had on studies there. Um, Nutritionists uh, is a little bit different where you you are not registered to practice as as a medical dietitian. Um, but you're registered to to provide nutrition advice and so on. and and so for me on a on a sort of daily basis, what that involves is the coaching um, or the clients that I'm coaching. Um, I can advise them on on ways to optimize, say their meal exercise timing, they if they're leading up to races i can I can advise on. How they might be optimising their carbohydrate intake, or during their race, for example, how they can optimise their feeding. If it's a prolonged event that's, say, longer than sixty minutes, what could they feed with? What could they um, use to carry the food? Which is another <laughs> component of some of these races. Okay. Um, how often should they be eating, and so on? So that that's kind of where my uh, yeah my use of that comes
1: in. Okay. So it's just. This, this is message i spent some time trying to figure it out before we were talking because it really seems like i mean you have the ability to cover a large variety of what people would be interested in if they said i don't know what to eat or like the best thing to eat or like that kind of thing
0: yeah.
1: um it's just yeah you, you have to stay away from like the medical side of things
0: yeah and you can't prescribe a diet to somebody right and you and, and actually, I think if you're trying to do everything, there's not really enough time right. uh, to, to cater for that. And I think if someone needs a, a nutrition coach, <laughs> then that's something entirely separate where, they, right. where they're trying to change their their lifestyle, maybe alter some of the nutrients that they're, they're uh, ingesting or, or find ways to help themselves either lose weight or maintain weight or if you're strength training to try and gain mass or whatever. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, this this is a little bit. I saw this on your website, and this is like, I think a quote from you it says, "If it if it ain't fun, you ain't doing it right." <laughs> um, and like this is something that I see time and time again. Almost everybody I talk to, and I, you know, I'm talking to predominantly very competitive, often endurance athletes. And it seems like yeah. everybody is like, "Why well, I, I have fun doing it? I like it because I have fun." You know, I I don't do it because I'm trying to be olympian or or whatever it is Mm. Um, did did you come about this philosophy the hard way or did it come more easily to you
0: um i think as a again going back to being a kid i've just always enjoyed moving and always enjoyed being outside and it's never really changed as soon as the sun shines and i step out the door I, i feel like that child and so i think a lot of people could relate to that that they just enjoy moving um, particularly people that are training for for running based events and, and whatever um, but I, I think where that philosophy came from is actually I suppose over the last 10 years of starting to to coach advise and so on I have met a number of athletes who are very robotic in their approach and are just trying to achieve like a PB or wow. a position or a podium place and you know and this is not the majority at all but But um, but but I never really understood that approach is if it's not fun, then what where where's the stimulus coming from? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and and you you kind of see it. And again, this is very anecdotal, but you kind of see it when people start to lose interest in their own performance. It's often because they're not enjoying what they're doing. And that Mm -hmm. that can either be that they're. You know, if they're self-coached, maybe they've just done the same thing too often. Or if they're being coached by someone like myself, maybe we're giving them the wrong type of training and it's just becoming boring. And so, yeah, yeah, so there's that, I guess the off season is a key time for anyone that trains. But when your season ends, there's sometimes a little bit of depression sets in because you don't know what to do. And so that is the perfect time to wonder, you know, am I enjoying it? And what can I do now to have fun? And is that just getting out and hiking while I'm not running so much and just enjoying the, you know, nature and and whatever, or maybe calling your friends or family and doing some Mm. joint expedition? So, yeah. So I think that's kind of where it came from is maybe meeting people and and even working with people that have lost that enthusiasm and and, yeah, but are still trying to tap away at the performance and not, not achieving or not succeeding. So,
1: Yeah. I I saw a conversation recently on on a forum, Talking about, she's um, like kind of changing as you age. The answer to the question, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" Oh, yeah. And you know, so we, as kids, often say like, "I want to be an astronaut" or "I want to be an artist" or like all of these things. And I think somebody came up their their suggestion to like what the answer to this question should be was a little bit pithy, and they said, "Well, what do you want to be when you grow up?" And They said, "Well, I want to be happy when I grow up." Yeah. It wasn't so much like, which which is which is what we're after, right? When we say, "Oh, I want to be an artist or I want to be a professor or whatever it is that I want to be," yeah. you just want to be happy, right? Like that's what you're yeah. actually after. Yeah. So that, that kind of reminds me of that, where it's like, yeah, you may be after a podium spot, but like, don't you want to be enjoying yourself?
0: Yeah, yeah. Would you enjoy the podium more if you enjoyed the journey to get there? And,
1: right. Yeah. Right. Um yeah. the other thing I think about is like you you mentioned um athletes getting bored whether they you know done too much of the same thing themselves or whether um one thing I think about with boredom I think we often like misattribute what boredom is mm-hmm. and at least for me I find boredom if we dig down is actually a kind of anxiety or it's like mm-hmm. You know you're bored, but like I almost I think we prescribe boredom as the state of a lack, like a, a lack of input or a lack of stimulus. Whereas I think it's almost too much internal stimulus. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's like it's it's this this itch inside your head. It's like do something different, move, stop yeah. being still or whatever. Um, do you like? Do you find the same thing in those people that you see, they're like doing the same thing too often?
0: Yeah. Some of the the anecdotes I'm thinking of that, that's part of the issue I think. And, and, but, but it's on an individual basis. And and again, when it comes to coaching, it's more, you know, you kind of throw the means of the population out the window and you're just (laughs) working on an individual basis. But some people also love that boredom approach and, and, Uh one one athlete I work with at the moment just loves that like routine like wants to see the same session every week and doesn't want to be confused by something new and 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 that's kind of interesting like to me personally that would be the most boring way I could ever train myself but for them it works pretty well and so yeah so it's a little nuanced right Mm -hmm. Um, so these um I'm, I'm sure there are. You know, I don't know anyone here, but I'm sure there are probably Olympians that have stood on that podium with a gold medal, and they're not entirely happy. <laughs> yeah, know, for whatever reason. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. Just the the battle. Was it worth it? You start evaluating. This was so hard to achieve. What was? Yeah. Was it worth it? And
1: so. Was it right? And yeah, I think that whether you're an Olympian or not, I think that comes down to. The question for a lot of people, at least it's, at some point or another, whether you're beginning or you've been doing it for years, is, you yeah. know, is it is it worth it? And I guess yeah. maybe that's maybe that's a good question for you as far as like, since you've stepped away from from OCR, I assume it's to focus more on coaching now and kind of giving your athletes priority.
0: You yeah. Know, what,
1: what, yeah. What? Yeah. What was that change like? When did it not become as quite as worth it for you?
0: Yeah, I think um, like a, a couple of reasons, I, I'd, I'd made quite a big change in life last year. I mean, we 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 left where we were living and mm-hmm. my wife and I both quit our jobs to go and find somewhere to live in the mountains. So there was a big change going on in our life. Okay. And and like I said earlier, the, the stimulus to compete, I'd done it for so long, there was no longer that burning desire to like look through the race calendars and, you know, what can I win? What can I try and achieve? It, it kind of yeah, it kind of blunted a bit, and at the same time, it, it's nice also to step back and and like you say, focus on coaching and and focus on okay i've I've gained all the experience I can in the racing environment. Um, I've raced at the top level in that sport. I, I don't need to do that anymore to inform my judgments for coaching Mm -hmm. so if i step away from that and still do the occasional event or at least go to some events uh, to learn how it's developing then then that's good and you know and 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 things like i mean outside the obstacle racing scene trail races mountain races road races you can almost step out your door any weekend (laughs) and find one to do Mm -hmm. and just to you know just to release some kind of uh, yeah (laughs) some energy but um yeah so, uh, so yeah a combination of factors yeah probably uh, just time for a change and I, I just don't have that drive to to compete anymore and yeah and a, a bit of honesty as well I suppose is that you you know we all know what we're capable of and and mm-hmm. you get to that point where you know you've probably achieved all you can athletically and and, and you know there's nothing more to come so just ease off <laughs> there's no need uh, to stress yourself so much anymore just <laughs> focus on the nicer things in life that aren't sport related and, and and so on so th- there's a little bit of that for me personally but uh, yeah
1: yeah no i i've definitely gone through a lot of that kind of in the last mm-hmm. year or so um, after a an injury season ending injury last year and mm-hmm. um, just figuring out what, like why am i doing this anymore what what do I want to do? You know, what? How do I enjoy life? Because you know, I like you. I started when I was twelve. You know, yeah. You you've got a few more years on me, but you know, kind of similar starting time frame. And it's just like yeah, you work so hard for so long, and then you're like, okay, and it's 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 your focus like that. It's been my whole world for almost twenty years. Yeah. And it just it just it brought me a lot of enjoyment, but then you're like, it diminishes, and you have to figure out. Okay, well, what what do I enjoy now? And it's tough. Yeah. At least for me, it's been tough, just because yeah. it, all the other hobbies and activities have fallen by the wayside to, to make room for the focus. And then when yeah. it's it's kind of fallen out of the limelight, you're like, oh, there's this big void to kind of figure out what to do now. <laughs> yeah, and
0: that, that's that's a very tough thing, I think, for a lot of people who've competed. When that day comes that they end the competition, it's like, what next? And you suddenly have all these hours free in the day,
1: yeah. You know,
0: and you don't have to worry about what you've just eaten. It's you know, you, well, for health you should, but of course, like for your athletic performance, it doesn't matter anymore. So yeah. So uh, and that that that's difficult. And I, I think one of the other um, what's the word? Not concern, but one of the other uh, issues is that there's nothing to help people understand how to overcome that. You know, there's yeah. no guidance. But, you know, and, and this is there are good examples right at the top Olympic end where people end their career and they don't know what to do. They're like, mm. well, <laughs> what now, you know, do I go into politics? Do I go into coaching? Do I, you know, mm. what, so uh, yeah.
1: So, as, as, as we're talking about it, I'm like, I should find a bunch of former professional athletes and figure out what everybody did and like <laughs> just, start talking about, yeah. just start talking to professional athletes about it. I don't know what for, I don't know what reason I would do it <laughs> besides curiosity. Yeah, (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's definitely because everybody takes a different journey. I know there are plenty of people that go go on to coach because it's like, obviously, Mm. you've got the time and experience and and all the in-depth knowledge of the sport. And then there are some people that are like, all right, I'm going to go work an office job that has nothing to do with what it is. So, it's the kind of varied ways people take life after sport, um, I think Mm. might be interesting. Yeah. Um, So, I want to talk about your research you are, uh, at least so far, the most prolific um, research author I've spoken to. Okay. So I, <laughs> I, I want, <laughs> at least so far. Um, so I first I want to know how do you come up with so many topics? As I was looking through, like the research database with all you know all of this stuff you have your name on, and there is sometimes you know. Three, four, I think even sometimes five, maybe maybe more. I didn't go through every every year you published, but I mean a lot of studies that came out, you know, mm-hmm. for you a year. How do you come up with so many topics and, and set up all those studies to come out in a you know in a single year? Yeah,
0: good good question. I've never been asked that actually, but it's a very practical <laughs> question. <laughs> so uh, the I guess the way. The development of ideas works is when you when you start off in that career path, you're you're generally being supervised by somebody else and the research projects you're working on are often the brainchild of that person. Um, You know, so the hypothesis you'll be testing will be whatever they've been working on for years and and so on. When I finished my PhD in the UK and moved to the US to do a postdoc in Cleveland, a little bit of good fortune. I went there at a time where the the supervisor I had was very well funded. He had a pretty big group and there was a a kind of small collection of good postdocs around me. And we worked together tremendously well and like, yeah, discussed ideas all day, every day and did a lot of work Mm -hmm. and so on. And A little bit of good fortune. and, And that kind of helped me embed myself in that career and, and kind of grow from there. Um, so at that at that time, the ideas were actually coming from uh, the supervisor that we had, but he was pretty good at helping you nurture your own development. And so that was one thing I was very thankful for there, was being allowed to have some independence and, and, and start to nurture your own ideas. So. Um, So when I left there, um, I moved to Denmark, I lived in Denmark for about six years and um, progressed up to become an associate professor there. So at that point, you've gone through like a transition from being somebody else's worker, working on their ideas, transitioning through this this phase of you know, becoming a little more independent to a point where you're entirely independent and quite autonomous and you're bringing in your own grants, you're paying your postdoc salaries and so on. And at that point, then you're that person. So, you know, your, your students and postdocs are now working on, on ideas that you've had. And, and, you know, there's a bit of mutual, of course, discussion and some people uh-huh. have their own independent projects. Um, but for me, it was always like, a you know, looking at the direction. So what is it I'm trying to, to look at? And so there's a continual theme throughout my publications that's kind of gearing towards trying to understand how physical activity and exercise can be used to either prevent or treat um, various components of diabetes um, okay so it's looking at Um, blood glucose control or whether it's looking at um, blood lipids or whether it's looking at um, ways of optimizing how to use activity in these patients and so there was a a kind of continual theme towards that and and where I eventually ended up and you know I suppose in the last sort of five years of the career was I started getting less interested in uh, I said this earlier actually but the the, uh, less interested in like the means of the population and more interested in the individual And that's kind of where the overlap with coaching comes from, because you're then looking at, you know, how does one individual person respond to this and why do they respond in that way? Mm -hmm. And that was really where I ended up, I guess, leaving the career path was at that point where, you know, that that was my interest and I'd done some work in that area. And, you know, I probably could have kept going, but I I felt I needed a change. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, So everything was generated towards that goal. And. And, and now there are, you know, of course, there are groups that will continue doing that type of work and mm. yeah. um, managing the, the, the experiments. It, it's um, that can be challenging because you need people. Um, so, you, you know, you need to employ good students, good postdocs to be able to carry out the projects. Um, and, and I suppose one of the issues in science is not everything comes to fruition. And so mm. you can. You can have projects that may be good ideas, but you just can't get them off the ground because you don't have funding or you don't have the people to work on it. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, a little bit of strategic planning um, to get things completed. So,
1: um, so what... You talking about focusing on, a, a, like, a single individual and not so concerned about the mean. At that point, yeah. were you doing, like, case study-type work or...? Mm-hmm no
0: not so much so that those those interests um essentially came out of looking at if we you know just just give an example to kind of set the scene if we have a, a group of patients that have undergone a particular treatment and it doesn't matter what the treatment is and we look at the entire group of patients and this particular measurement has increased following the treatment Mm-hmm. That looks brilliant and you can run some stats and you can show that it's significant and so on. And that, that's mm-hmm. nice. But when you look within that sort of average value, there's often patients who do not respond um, or they respond ridiculously well. Uh, right. And work uh, 80, 20. With... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you uh, when you work with people, <laughs> um, you talk to them. And, and And when we're talking about exercise, which is generally a, a health promoting thing, there were a number of cases where where our research participants and patients in the hospitals had undergone like long-term interventions and they'd invested all this time and effort in coming to the lab and training and and getting sweaty and (laughs) giving up part of their day and then at the end of it nothing has changed (laughs) and and on a personal level they find that quite hard to deal with they're like so yeah why why haven't things improved and that that was kind of where my interest came about there is actually ignoring the the scientific approach and actually thinking, actually, these are people uh, and, and they're not so happy when things don't improve. So is this, is this real or is it just anecdote? And, mm-hmm. and so when I looked into that a bit more, there, there, there were more than just random <laughs> random coincidences. There are mm-hmm. a number of people that have this same kind of outcome where, you know, they're not necessarily getting more diseased, but they're just not improving. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we were trying to identify what factors could be responsible for that. And then, you know, if I bring the parallel to coaching again, we do the same thing all the time. You have, you know, an athlete that doesn't seem to be responding to a particular strength training regimen or a particular speed workout or set of speed workouts. Why is it? Are they malnourished? Are they not sleeping? Are they, you know, is there stress, psychological stress? Are there like family events going on? And then if all of those things are normal, then you look at the training is the exercise wrong? And so there's, you know, it's kind of fun. It's very analytical, but it's uh, you can kind of chip away at it. And yeah, so a kind of uh, a random parallel between yeah, academic research in in diabetic patients and athletic performance, but it's uh, essentially quite similar.
1: Yeah, but I mean that's that's a I guess novel and kind of neat way to 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 look at the research though, and I guess it makes it makes sense too in both directions, both in terms of say like some a patient that doesn't respond to treatment and then somebody who like hyper responds to treatment, like what are their factors? Can you know can could you somehow like for you, the non-responder, like could you somehow gather a group of non-responders and then try a new set and then see, Mm -hmm. you know, how do they respond to this new entirely different stimulus? Yeah. And then again and you could I know sample size is a a big issue when it comes to academic studies. As I talk to everybody, it's like getting enough people to participate. But in my, at least in my head, because I come from a math background, so I'm like, just turn the numbers through. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, we you could do that like for an infinite number of variations theoretically, where it's like, all right. New set. We took all the non-responders. We put them in a new set. Now we have a new set of non-responders, and we like go down. (laughs) You're right. You just keep going down (laughs) until you've like resolved everything, and then you figured out like, okay, if you fit this criteria, you should be doing this kind of treatment. And this anyway, it's just it just gets my head spinning about a a different way you could try to figure out how to help people, which is kind of like, I mean, really, what we we both do in different ways is like looking at the individual like how can i help and affect this person
0: yeah that's right and and i think i mean you've you've hit that on the head there is that if you have somebody that has not responded to one particular approach it doesn't mean that they will never respond to something else right and so when you take that collective of people who haven't necessarily benefited from whatever it is they've done you know what what is it that we can do to optimize the approach and, and mm-hmm be a good use of everyone's time and yeah
1: um do you have like i'll say like a favorite piece of research or do you feel like i you have a lot of research so maybe it's hard to pick out do you feel like there's anything that was like the most important piece that you you did or worked on
0: um yeah i think um i think one of the it started in denmark there was a, a line of work where um, we noticed that if we take a diabetic patient, we noticed one observation that the the patients who had very poorly controlled blood glucose levels um, tended to respond a little less uh, to to an exercise training stimulus, and and so that that observation. Uh, it was a very small observation, but for me personally, that that kind of led to a development of ideas that set the scene for me until I left the career path in December just last year. So that that particular period of time, which I think was 2012, was was quite a nice year to to make these observations because it kind of mapped out the next seven years. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, and that's a very personal, yeah, personal feeling, but um, and and perhaps probably that. It, it certainly wasn't the piece of work that gained the most like citations or the most like notoriety. It was just a personal, like, Oh, that, that, I, I was pleased with that. So, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if that particular, you know, time that period that that one piece sparks a whole slew of things, then it's like, mm. even if it's a, you know, personal satisfaction, it's still, I would say that's a, I'll call it a high performing, piece of research just because it sets the scene for all the things you end up doing
0: yeah that's right opens different doors and yeah and and also I think one of no matter what you do in life no matter what your job is you you need sort of new developments and you need kind of refreshment every Mm -hmm. so often and that that was one of those moments in my career at that time was like oh this is something refreshing and this is you could see it kind of like (laughs) all the sparks going off here so that's quite nice and yeah
1: yeah, where it's like it, it, the work becomes energizing rather than like draining mm-hmm. to have to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: that's So,
1: yeah. Um, so one of the things I, I notice, I'm, I'm sure you see this, not maybe not all the time, but from time to time, they'll you'll see like uh, I'll say a, a, a pop publisher or blog style publisher like online, they'll quote research and then they'll give it a headline that has nothing to do with the research or it would be like really overblown. And you're like, that's not quite what the study was saying, or, or maybe yes. the study's faulty. Um, so, I want your opinion on, so as a layman or up for other laymen, if we're looking at scholarly research or looking at these articles and then trying to verify with the research, are there any immediate red flags to look for, look for when you're like, like, this isn't very good science? Like, is there anything you would see that, that would pop out?
0: Yeah, I think yeah, I know what you're talking about because there's a lot of sort of mass media that that translates science or translates probably is the wrong word, but tries, tries to translate to, science. Um, and I guess as a scientist, it can be frustrating. And and I suppose also I've had personal examples where I've been involved with journalists and and articles that have been written. And when you read the final article, there are some clever ways that your conversation has been like. Turned into a, a discussion with other scientists when that never took place, and that, that's a little frustrating. But that said, I, I love that those people exist because we need—we're very bad as scientists generally at getting the, the public message out, and we need—we need the right. people that can translate. And so, yeah. So when you're reading these stories, yeah, are there things? Are there red flags you can look for? Um, I think the first thing that stands out to me is when there's a, um, um, uh, a what do you call it? Like a, a journalist's article that they, they will mention an author or a study, but there's no ability to click a link to go to the actual study. So you okay. can't find the original source. Yeah. And and, and a, a lot of I find anyway, a lot of journalists are quite bad at that. Even some leading news outlets, mm-hmm. um, people that are quite good at it. Um, Alex Alex Hutchinson is very good at it. I like his approach, his style. He takes. Um, I think he now writes for Outside Magazine, but he has a sweat science kind of blog article post outlet, and he's very good actually at evaluating the science and then also um, providing links to the original source, and so you can get get involved with that. The difficulty mm-hmm. is, is not everyone has the you know the education, I suppose, to be able to then interpret the original data. Right. That, there's a difference between just reading the abstract and reading the paper and understanding the nuances. So you you put your trust right in the journalism, and, mm-hmm. and it's difficult to do. Um, but but I would say that's probably one of the key red flags is, you know, what, what's the source and can you access it? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yeah. That's just something, it's something I, I struggle with. And part of the reason I like having people like you on the podcast, or really why the podcast is focused on people like you, is mm-hmm. that I feel like we need more go between between people doing the research and and the rest of society who who hopefully can benefit from the research. Yeah, just yeah. because I mean, and I you know I, I I didn't do I didn't do a master's or, or doctoral, but I did do some um, research for my degree f- for undergrad. So yes. I'm you know I come from a background where I'm at least moderately familiar with reading research yeah. papers, and even sometimes I'm like. Wait, what's ha- like what's happening? Just the way that they're like the kind of standardization of how they need to be written, yeah, it is not. It's not common language, so it's it, it can no. be very confusing sometimes, especially when you haven't like you know, been in that environment in quite some time, mm, let alone yeah. not familiar with it at all. So yes. it's like, yeah. I, I I wish there was some way we could like. You know how you can go on Google Translate, and if I'm like, I'm like, what's this word in French? I can go type it in. I wish you could like yeah. take a paper and be like, can you translate this into everyday <laughs> yeah. English for me, and, and make it easier without the interpretation of the of um, like a pop journalist that's not very good <laughs> yeah. at reading the science.
0: No, that's right. The, the answer is forty two. You know, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Always make sure you have a pillow with you. It, no, it's a towel. Don't forget to bring the a towel. Ta- Hello. Yeah, pillow. <laughs> pillows in my head. Towel. There's yeah. a towel. Um, uh-huh. so we're we're coming up here on the end uh, end of our time. i have to be mindful sure. of more time. Um, so I asked everybody this season, I don't know if you watched Matt's episode a couple weeks ago, but um, I asked everybody for this year, if you can only choose one food for recovery, what food do you
0: choose? <laughs> my my honest answer and it's not a good answer my honest answer would be a nice cold beer <laughs> okay um but that, that's not from any kind of physiological viewpoint at, two, at all right. apart from the rehydration which is quite useful <laughs> yeah um yeah for one food for recovery um i i mean if we go by what we should be doing then after like a hard workout i guess that's what you're talking about here is, yep. is like yep. post exercise yeah mm-hmm. Is a is a mix of some carbohydrate and some protein um, Mm. to replenish our glycogen store and to help support muscle protein synthesis. How you do that? There's a million different ways. Uh, You know, you can reach for a bottle of energy powder. You can reach for a nice like cooked meal that happens to be in the fridge. Um, Me personally, I quite like just to eat some bread and some cheese and a bit of like tuna or something like this. But it's just whatever you've got on the shelf. And uh, you know, yeah, I I don't. Um, I don't advocate superfoods. I don't, I don't really believe there's such a thing as a superfood for recovery after exercise. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, there's no one nutrient that's going to optimize our adaptation or, or, or resynthesize what we've depleted during the uh, um, the, the exercise. So uh, yeah. So I'd be hesitant to pick out one single food. But, uh, yeah.
1: uh, no, that's okay. The, the reason I I love this question is. I think you I mean food's universal we all have to eat. But yeah. it, it kind of forces you to be to to pick something. And what I noticed kind of like you did is that a lot of people will say like I've gotten pizza several times and just yeah. uh, tacos um, every once in a while I'll get something that usually from um, the like dietitians or more like nutrition focused career people um, mm-hmm. Something that's that is what you would anticipate as like the quote-unquote healthy answer, mm-hmm. um, but it, it seems like regardless of performance level, people have yeah. almost like a comfort food that they're like, yeah. like I need this, and it's maybe it's not a case of I just need the physiological side of it, but like I need a mental reprieve, so like I need almost like a treat.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's funny, actually, that there was something, we, we used to call it dirty Sunday, <laughs> and uh, in, in Cleveland, after our long runs, uh, we would go and eat some obscene, like, fast food, wherever uh-huh. it was from, you know, Arby's, McDonald's, or whatever, but <laughs> like milestone of nutrition after a long, long effort, but uh, yeah. yeah, so, uh, but I think one of the interesting things with that is that it's what you have access to, and, and we can... As scientists, nutritionists, whatever, you can preach what people should be doing, but mm-hmm. the reality is what people actually do can be quite right. different. And and it's often related to what you have access to. And it's happened to me a thousand times, and it happens to people I coach, is you come back from you know, a ridiculous workout, and your fridge is empty. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, so what do I do? Like, <laughs> I need to hobble down to the store and buy some groceries, or you can get just eat open on your app and... <laughs> get Something delivered and yes, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So I'd be lying if I said I hadn't like fast food delivered a kebab <laughs> <from> <laughs> after a workout because I had nothing in the house. But,
1: uh... No, that's okay. Is, I just I love seeing like the reality of it because we all have that idea about, like you said, well, okay, like that the proteins and carbs often in, prescribed in the four to one ratio and. Okay, I need to have all this perfect timing and all this kind of things. But it's like life is messier than that. So I just, I love seeing how it actually works out for most people.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Nice. So, um,
1: Thomas, if people want to get in touch with you, kind of see what you're doing, where can they find you?
0: Yeah. So I think in in the context of, of this uh, this discussion, uh, the website vo2.com v e o h t u dot com. Um, you can and check that's up,
1: up on the screen if you're up on on YouTube.
0: Yes. Excellent. So yeah, you can connect there, and you can find the social media channels through there um, at vo2, and that's the the best way to to get a hold of me. So
1: um, yeah. Sounds good. Thanks for coming on today, Thomas.
0: Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks for uh, yeah, thanks for asking me some nice questions.
1: <laughs> Cheers.
0: Cheers.